0: Now, this, I didn't plan this this way, but, uh, you know, this is going to help you today, especially if you're, uh, uh, it, I think this will help you no matter where you're at as a young Christian. It will certainly help you uh, put the Book of Romans together, but I think it will even help you folks that are, uh, we started an institute class this year uh, with people that, kind of, a, uh, kind of an experimental thing, really, with the people that I have been working with every week. And uh, t- this coming Saturday is their first test. And they've got a path to pass the test to stay in it. And uh, some of them are already in trouble because they were supposed to see me this month and they haven't, and they're not here this morning. And so, uh, you, you have a test with six questions on it. You miss two, and if you don't meet with me, that's already counts as one. So you can see that some of you, some of them are going to be in trouble. But that's okay. We got we need more room there anyhow. We're kind of packed out. But I think for those of you that are here today, this is really going to help you. And uh, my goal is to help you get the Bible. And, you know, last week we looked at one of the great parallels in the Bible. And uh, we talked about how that Israel, uh, how they missed the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the rejection of, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, first of all, the Holy Scriptures, and then the Spirit of holiness. And I, I showed you how that the nation of Israel, the first thing they did was reject God's Word. Really, if you want to put it in a category, the first thing they did is reject God. Then they rejected His Word. And then they rejected His Spirit. So when they did that, God shut down, Holy Spirit of God shut down the nation of Israel that they could not get anything from God. And that's basically why they could not see. And we talked about last week how that the, in the Old Testament, the prophets wrote about the suffering of Christ, that's His crucifixion, and the glory of Christ, that's His second coming. And because they lost the Holy Spirit of God, which I also showed you last week, that is the key to you and me understanding the scriptures. they couldn't figure it out. Then I showed you the great parallel that uh, today, you and I as Christians, we're going to miss the greatest event in our lifetime uh, that's going to be uh, fall this planet, and that's going to be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is God's people, and it's through that nation that God wanted to bring His Son And they rejected Him because of their unbelief. Their unbelief was because of the fact that they quit the Bible and they quit believing in the Holy Spirit of God. Well, in the New Testament, if you're saved here this morning, if you're a saved person this morning, God wants to work through you. This church is a body of saved people. God wants to work through this church to accomplish His plan. This church is only as strong as the individual Christians that are in it. That's why we go to great length and great detail to not only teach you the Bible, but make sure that everybody in ministry is following the Scriptures and doing exactly what uh, they need to do with it. And we, we talked how that the many of the Christians are going to miss the greatest event uh, in all of the Bible, in reality, the second coming of Christ, for the same reason. They rejected God, they rejected the Word of God and now the Holy Spirit of God has no effect in their life. Because you and I will never figure out the Bible on our own. I mean, you can get a book on being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a mechanic. uh, Any trade you want to think of, you can go and get a book, and you can teach yourself that trade or have other people teach it to you. But when it comes to the Bible and the ministry and the things of the Word of God, it's the Holy Spirit of God. Everything that you and I have in our being uh, in ourself will not help us when it comes to the Bible. That's why we have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to teach us. And I gave you some great verses on that last week. We talked about how that, those, that great concept last week was what, we, what I call anyhow the sub-levels of the Bible. We talked about the Bible has different levels. The level that you live on where you have to deal with issues in all your life. The basement level where you, you store the verses and the concepts that you learn. But then there's a sub-level. And the sub-level of the Bible is the the goal for all of God's people. It ought to be anyhow. It ought to be where you really understand how the whole aspect of the Word of God works. My whole job and everything that I do with you, one-on-one as a church, and I I can really only accomplish it with the one-on-one because it takes that specialized, be able to get into your world and and hand-cut for you what you need. But I know this. I know that uh, my job and everything I do is to try to get you to that sub level. On Thursday night, you'll find that I take a a long time detailing every aspect out. You're going to see it on Sunday morning. You saw it last week. You're going to see it again today. To point out to you the things that you have to learn, I gave some of you folks a book, How to Study the Bible, this morning. That is one of the greatest books you'll ever get your hand on. Not because I wrote it. Uh, from the aspect of showing you how to get to the sub-level. That's what I meant. I didn't mean it was great because I wrote it. It's, it's a great book to show you. That book is basically how I learned the Bible and how I got introduced to the sub-level of the Bible. And because the sub-level is where it all goes together, where it all fits. And I'll help any of you anytime, place, do that and put that all together. So today we're going to continue on in our passage and we've been, we've been really dealing with the introduction, the greeting that Paul has been given the church. And uh, we're going to finish that up today and uh, we divided chapter 1 into two sections and we're going to finish section 1 and, and then we'll go on to section 2 next week. But here's what he said. Let's follow along here in, in Romans chapter 1, uh, in verse 1. It says, Paul is servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And we've talked about that to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you uh, always in my prayers, making requests, if by any means, Now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God uh, to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, Father, we ask you today to be with us. Help us to put the Word of God together. Help us to uh, get it all, Lord, in a a right order here. And help us to leave today understanding some, some more great truths about your Word. Help us every time we meet together for these people, Your people, Lord, the ones that I have been entrusted to uh, teach the Word of God to. Help them to go home today a little closer to You, a little more in love with You, a little more wanting to follow You. And help me, Lord, make the Bible clear to them today. And I can only do that as the Holy Spirit of God helps me do that. So, Lord, we ask You today to meet with us, give us what we need to have today, and we'll thank You and praise You in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you remember when we started Romans chapter 1. In fact, I think it was in the introduction. I told you how that when Paul opens up this book he, in verse 7, he, it's different than all the other books that he writes to. In all of his other books, he starts out writing to the churches or to the saints that are in the churches. He doesn't do that in Romans, and you remember that. You should have marked that when we came through it. He doesn't do that in Romans. In Romans, he's showing us the first great truth we saw. And that is the fact that Paul understands that, uh, that we are always going to be under the domination of the Roman Empire. He understands the great mystery of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 17 and 18. the mystery called Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots. He understands how that they were under Rome at that particular point. He understands the transition down through the history of the church. And he understands that in your day and my day that we are under Rome. Rome is the world power, uh, has always been the world power from a religious standpoint. And we, we, we know that now from what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And With that great teaching in his opening remarks, he begins to lay out what I call the cornerstone of the difference between the church and the world, the religious world that we live in. And this is very, very important. Because this is what he's trying to accomplish in in Romans in his his greeting. Now look at verse 3. Here's what it says in verse 3. We're going to look at another great doctrine here that we're going to explain to you that you're going to be able to see how this fits in. Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now... I want you to look at that verse for a moment and I want you to tell me in just a second here, I want you to tell me what's wrong with that verse. Now, in time as you come through the Bible, you're going to develop what I call an eye to see things that don't make sense in the Bible. There's a lot of people that when they look at the Bible, uh, they see things that don't make sense and immediately uh, the Bible's got to have a problem with it. Well, I know better than that And I understand that God wrote the Bible so we would, if you were paying attention and looking for things, you would ask yourself the question, why is that? A lot of learning the Bible is seeing things that don't match up and not immediately going to the point and saying, well, it's wrong, but asking yourself why it doesn't match up and finding the answer and showing you how that both are right, but they don't match up together, but they both have a, an individual application and that's called rightly dividing the word of truth now there's something wrong with this verse and what i want to do for you in time as we go through it and some of you you know some of you are are, are getting are getting it and what i want to do for you is i want to help you develop your eye to be able to see things uh in the bible if you ever been over to steve Brackin's house he's got a to me an incredible arrowhead collection And he's got them all in the walls, you know, and they're all in cases and everything. And, and, uh, you know, he's quite the avid uh, uh, arrowhead collector. And I was talking with him about it, you know, and, uh, and, and, and he was telling me how he finds them, you know. And he's got the ability, because he's done it for so long, that he can walk along a creek bed or walk along something, and he can look at something over there, and something will stand out to him that isn't right with the scenery. He'll see a stone that is beveled differently. He'll see a shape that doesn't look like the rest of the stones. And he'll walk over and he'll say, wow, that's an arrowhead. Now, I would walk over it 100,000 times and never see that. But he's trained his eye and people who look for the. My dad was the same way. My dad, and, and I know we have them in here, my dad was a mushroom hunter. And mushrooms, the little morel mushrooms, they're, they're, they're hard to find. I mean, you've got to look for them. And my I, my dad would never like to take me mushroom hunting because I'd smash all the mushrooms walking over them. He could see a mushroom. I was going to say miles away, but that would be an exaggeration. But he could see mushrooms along before before I could, and he would be able to go into a woods and why? Because he had trained himself to look for mushrooms. And it's like anything else in life. Once you you know, this is why people like the. Uh, you know, if you're a you're like the movie CSI, you know, crime scene investigator, a good detective goes into a room of a crime scene, and you know what he does? He looks for things that's out of order, uh, other than the dead body laying on the floor. I mean, he, he he looks for <laughs> he looks for things that's out of, out of order. He'll look for something that didn't right. He'll and when they take the body, in, they'll look for stuff, stuff inside the body that didn't right. Then they'll look at marks on the body that didn't right. I mean, the average woman doesn't have bad bruises all over her neck. I mean, you know, it, it, it's kin to the fact that somebody strangled her, and, and it's a thing that we all have to do. That we all have to do that. Uh, years ago, years ago, I uh, when when we lived in Ohio, and uh, I had a job didn't pay very much, and uh, we uh, we had to, our first daughter was being born, Kelly, and and I had to, you know, back then I think it cost like a thousand dollars to have a baby. I, it, It's a lot more than that now. But we didn't, you know, and I I didn't, I'm trying to tell you how I used to be a, I used to be a turtle rancher. I used to catch snapping turtles. My wife knows this is true. And that's how I paid for our first daughter being born. And uh, there was a restaurant in town that would pay me, uh, and this was back in what, 70, 70, 73, 70, it was before we went to the Baptist temple, I went to uh, Ken Baptist temple. Okay, anyway, it was a long time ago. And I think the minimum wage was like a dollar seventy-five back then because I know she had three jobs to try to get that all taken up here. After. And this restaurant would pay me $6 a pound for turtle meat and frog legs because turtle meat, they had a delicacy, didn't they, about turtle soup, see? And, and nobody, they couldn't get it. So, you know I mean, I've, I've always been an outdoor type, you know, and I, and I had this big swamp, you know, down about 20 miles south of my house. It was, I was catching snapping turtles that big around. My biggest I ever got was, you ever get a 65-pound snapping turtle in a net? You're going to find out who's a bigger man, him or you. I mean, they got heads on them like that. And don't think this because their head's right outside the shell. They got a neck that long on them. Me and my buddy one time, we were down there, and he, and we, were, we had a flat-bottom boat. We're up here in this swamp. And we got so many turtles that day that, and we used to get nets, you know, and you put them out with sticks and you put rotten bait in it. And, uh, and they, they, they love that rotten smell. So they'll fight their way into the net. And as long as the bait's in a steel container, like a wire mesh, they'll never try to get out. They just keep trying to get that. We had so many turtles that day that it was incredible. And we, 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 we had so many, all of our burlap bags were full. I had, we had to set two nets across the boat. And they had like six turtles in them. And, you know, and they get fighting among themselves. So we had to stand up. We couldn't even sit out. So we're standing up. He's in the front and I'm in the back. And I, this one turtle reached through and bit him on the rear end. And, I, he, and the guy weighed about 280 pounds. He was a big boy. And, you know, and we have our guns on, you know, shoot, shoot, shoot the snakes and all this stuff. And, and all I knew, all I remember was I heard a yell and the boat went woof, 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 and went over and dumped us all into that. We lost everything. And the water was about chest deep, so we had to dive down and pick up and, and then carry everything back up. But I did that, and, and I got out there. I was out there all the time, and I got so good at being able to read the signs. I, didn't, I couldn't do it now, but it was so good. I could see a turtle head at 200 yards and know it wasn't a stick sticking out of the water. I could, learn, I, could, I could learn and see everything before I stepped on it. I remember I was out with a kid one time when they go down with me, and he said, do you ever see any snakes down here? And I said, well, just the one you're standing on. And he jumped back and he had stepped on a big old bull snake. It was all curled up. But they're camouflaged so good that you can't see it. Well, I had trained my eye. I could tell the difference between whatever it was, see. And I, and I, I could see those snakes. And whatever you do in life, it's along those lines. And the Bible's the same way. You ought to be able to train your eye. In fact, when it comes to the Bible, you need to train three things. First of all, you need to train your heart. Second of all, you need to train your mind. And thirdly, you need to train your eye. Because you have to be able to see things in the Bible that the average person would miss, just like Steve with the arrowheads, me with the snakes, my dad with the mushrooms, my wife with the checkbook. I mean, you've got to be able to... That's a joke. you got to be able to see those things there that, that, that other people don't see. I, I have a, I love, when, I don't ever say anything to anybody, but <clears throat> some of you come over, have come over in the past and we went through the Bible together and you're studying a book of the Bible or something. And I, here's what I tell them to do. And it's a, it's a plan because I want to learn, I want to teach you to develop your eye. So if somebody comes over and studies the Bible with me, what I tell them is this, hey, look, you decide what you want to do. Book of the Bible, subject in the Bible, I don't care. You read that book or read up on that material and then you write down the things that you, don't, that you see that you don't understand and then bring it into me and I'll help you put the whole thing together because it, you have to do your part too. And I, I laugh sometimes because somebody will come in and they'll, they'll do a book, whatever the book may be, and they'll say, well, I got two chapters done. And I'll say, well, that's really good. And, but, and they, they'll come down and they'll have about at the end of our time and I don't ever say anything. But they got maybe four, five, six things out of there. And, and I'm looking at it and I kind of laughing to myself and I'm saying, you know what? You missed 98 things in that chapter. They just stand right out. But you see, it takes time to develop your eye. But you've got to focus. That You've got to develop your heart. You've got to develop your mind. You've got to develop your eye. Now look here. Look what it says here. It says, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, in this passage to me, uh, something jumps out at me, and it's in verse 3. Now, what do you see? What do you see? You see, I'm in the process of showing you, uh, t- showing you how to do this. We're, we're in a situation here where we're studying the books of the Bible. Uh, we, we're all the way up. We just finished Judges. We're going to get into Ruth. And I'm showing you how to put your Bible together. And I tell you that in time in your life, in your Bible, every page of your Bible. Every page in your Bible, you ought to have marked some way that when you're going through your Bible, it's telling you what is in that passage or that chapter. Uh, If you're going to teach the Bible at some point in your life, you're not going to be able to remember it all. I don't remember it all. You ask me a question on Thursday night, you think that, and, and obviously some of the questions you've answered a thousand times, you remember them. But there, many, many times, somebody will ask me something that I haven't messed with for a long time. And I don't see it. So what I do is is what I have to rely on what I put in my Bible. So right there, I'll come through that. That passage or that chapter will tell me what I got to deal with. Your Bible ought to be set up in such a way that when you walk through it, it yells at you what's in this chapter. You know how you do that? You get you one of those little yellow China markers over there. And... Uh, the things or the words, and I've given you lots of key words. They're in those books I gave you. That day, the day, uh, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ—they all mean something. Last week we talked about the Holy Spirit of God, and I showed you how that there's there's a number of, of titles for the Holy Spirit of God. They all mean something different. You some of you, you asked that question on Thursday night, and I showed you how that thing kind of works together. See. But, you know, the first thing I see here when I come into this is, and I'm, this is not the main thing because I'm going to ask you what you see on this, is, the, is the, it says the name Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is how you train your eye. The complete title for Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of those means something. The Lord means His deity, God the Father. Jesus was the name of the earthly man. Christ is the word for Christos or anointed. He's the anointed of the Lord. He's the Christ. So if you want the complete title that gives you all three aspects of Him, it is the Lord, He's God, Jesus, He was the earthly man, Christ, He's Christos, He's God's anointed one. Now, when you find the the term used you'll find it used differently. It doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. Sometimes it says Christ Jesus. Sometimes it says Lord Jesus. Sometimes it says Jesus Christ. Sometimes it says just Jesus. You see, every time you find that word used either in a combination of the two or separately by itself, it'll set the context for you. It means something different every time you see it because the three parts of His name mean something. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about training your eye. When I read a passage and it starts to say to me down through here, uh, His Son, Jesus Christ, I know I've got two aspects of a three-part name. Jesus, the earthly man, and Christ Christos, the anointed one. That sets a context for me. If he'd have said Christ Jesus, it would have reversed the process. It would have set another context. That's the first thing that you look for And that's what I'm talking about, about training your eye to read the Bible. You cannot read the Bible like any other book you ever read in life because God put that book together and the Holy Spirit of God put it through a systematic way that you have to read it, understand it, and it defines itself like I tell you in the book on how to study the Bible. These are all in there, by the way. Now, look at this. It says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David. All right. Raise your hand. Let me ask you here. What is the thing that jumps out at you other than the name of Christ? Anybody? And maybe this is beyond you at this point. Daniel, what? Well, that's close, but that's not it. Gary? Well, no, that's close, but that's not it. You got your hand up or you're fixing your hair? According to what? Close, but that's not it finish it yeah see what it says there the first thing that jumps out to me is it doesn't say it doesn't say he was born of the seed of David it said he was made of the seed of David you see the difference because if it was going to talk about you or me it would say born of your family it was talking about me it would say born of Frank H. Alexander but it wasn't it doesn't say it doesn't say born of what it says there it says made of the seed of David Now, that begins to one of the greatest studies, and this is what Paul is doing here. And this is what I'm talking about when it talks about having an eye for the detail of the Word of God. And it doesn't say that he was was born of the seed of David, but rather he was made of the seed of David. And Paul now begins to lay out the key to everything, which is the virgin birth of Christ. And as we go on through this, you're going to see his death And his resurrection after his death. Now let's go down sub level. Here we go. And this is good today because we got a small crowd here, so I don't have to rush through this, and I can take the time. And this is you're going to get you're going to get blessed for being here today. As far as leaving here today, understanding a little bit more about it, especially to institute people. Now, the old testament. Turn turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one, you can look on with somebody that's got one with you there. Isaiah, the Old Testament, it's the major prophets. It's probably right after, uh, uh, right before the minor prophets. I say you got uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So it's those little three major prophets together there. All right, look at, look at chapter Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, here's what it said. And this is what Paul was building on, but you've got to have the keen eye. The Bible never wastes an inch of space or wording. It teaches you something about everything. And you need to just learn to develop that eye. You just do. And and some of you are. I, Kyle, I was listening to Kyle the other night up there. The boys got a deal where they go up and they teach each other the Word of God every other Wednesday night or whenever it is. And I was listening to you on eternal security. And uh, I, I could see that you had... You had picked up some things. You you were you were seeing some things, and uh, you know I've listened to two or three of the guys now, and they they some of you are beginning to get it. Some of you are beginning to get it. It just is something you always got to stay with. But in Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen it says this. It says therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God is with us. Now, this is, this is the main prophecy in the Bible, one of the main prophecies in the Bible, that that shows you that Jesus Christ had to be virgin-born. He could not have been born of the seed of David. And we're going to find out why here in a minute. You see, most people believe that Jesus Christ was virgin-born. They just don't know why He had to be. See, Now, to me, that's as important as why he was, you see. So we're going to show you these things, and this is what Paul is alluding to. Paul, in his very opening and his very greeting, is so careful that he doesn't break the Christian Christian doctrine of the virgin birth. It's absolutely right on the money with everything that he does. Now... uh, it says, "Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign: behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." Now, in your Bible, and 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 if you don't have these, at some and I, and you younger Christians probably won't at this point, but you guys have been around for a while. In your Bible, you know, and we heard me talk about it before. There are forty-eight prophecies in the Old Testament that are given concerning the first coming of Christ of a virgin coming to the nation of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. 48 prophecies. Now, those 48 prophecies, and you ought to have them in the back of your Bible or someplace. If you haven't got them, you need to get them because when you start to deal with people about the Bible itself, these are absolutely crucial. And uh, by the way, this is how I really came to Christ by this. I told you my testimony, you know, that that I was saved at a, supposedly at a very early age. But I got away from the Lord. And by the time I was, uh, you know, just getting out of the army, you know, I was, I was into evolution. I was into astronomy, which I still am. But I was into the side of it where I really didn't put God into it. And it was this very thing that some guys, at, I was attending Kent State University then, uh, it, was, it was this very thing that, that used God used in my life. And I've used it a thousand times. And it goes like this. There are 48 prophecies in the Old Testament given about the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. These prophecies were given 600 to 1,000 years before He was ever even born. They're given by about 30 or, uh, 20 or 30 different men. They, uh, they span the expanse of the whole Bible in the Old Testament. And the chances, the chances against 48 prophecies about one man given 600 to 1,000 years before he was born, given on the expanse of the land mass and the different men that did it, the chances against, the chances against those 48 prophecies coming to pass are 10 to the 157th power. Now, I don't know if you know how big 10 to the 157th power is, but there are not 10 to the 157th power electrons in our universe. And you can get, a, on the head of a pin, you can get 100,000 electrons. You know how many electrons? There's a book out, a scientific book out that I had a number of years ago by a Frenchman. He's a mathematician called Dewey, And he says that the number of electrons in our universe, he puts a number at 10 to the 52nd power. You know what Dewey says? Dewey says this. He says that no event in, an event in life that the chances against are more than 10 to the electrons in the universe could never happen because the event, the value of the event can never be more than the value of the electrons that make reality in life. It's an incredible thing when you stop and think about it. He says that if the the odds against something are more than the electrons in a universe, and I'm talking about our universe, I'm talking about taking a universe and at center point and going out 300 million light years in all directions with its galaxies and the stars and the planets, there are not 10, that's 10, with 157 zeros after it, electrons in our universe. Now, if there's anything that proves that the Bible is supernatural, it's that. The chances against those 48 prophecies coming to pass were 10 to the 157th power, 100 more or so than the electrons not to be in our universe and yet at the first coming of Christ, every one of those was fulfilled on the exact day, on the exact month on the and some of them deal with the specifics. It's not generalities. it's not generalities like, oh yeah he's going to come someday. no those 48 prophecies deal with the day, they deal with the year. They deal with the time of the month. They deal with every aspect. They deal with a specific city. They deal with, it would be like me standing here and saying to you, in the year 6545, in St. Louis, Missouri, on Brown Street, at the intersection of Thompson, there's going to be a man born. That man's name is going to be whatever it is, and he's going to live for 42 years. And on July 9th, Forty-two years to the day of his birth, he's going to die. He's going to get killed in a car wreck at the corner of McGill and, and, and Market. And he's going to be buried in Westlawn Cemetery in South St. Louis. And he's plot number six, verse four, down the line. What are the chances of all that coming to pass? Well, that's the issue that you had with the first coming of Christ. Forty-eight prophecies given. The number against it was 10 to the 157th power. And on the day, on the day, on the day He showed up, He fulfilled every one of those prophecies that were more than electrons in the universe. You know how I know that that Bible is a supernatural book? Because there's no other book in the world like that. I'm asked many times, and it's true. <coughs> I'm asked many times, been asked on Bible study about, you know, you know, there was a lot of other virgin-born people down through history. You can go through history and you can find claims of all kinds of virgin-born people. Iris and her son, Osiris. Nimrod was supposedly a virgin-born from his mother, Tamaz. You find them all down through history. Somebody asked me one time, <coughs> what is the difference between those and the one that you believe in? Well, first of all, the difference is this. Name me one person on planet Earth whose life was changed from Iris and Osiris. That would be my first question. My second question is this. Do they have a book like that? No, they don't. You know why I don't believe in evolution? Remember what Douay said? If a thing was more, if the value of something or the event was more than the value of 10 to the 52nd power, <coughs> the thing would never happen because it, it, mathematically it cannot, it, it, it cannot go beyond the value of it. You know what the chances against evolution are? <coughs> it's 10 to the 40th. Thousand power, ten with forty thousand 000 zeros after it. That's what you're up against. So when you've got a Bible, next time somebody tells you that somebody tells you that your Bible uh, is just like you got a Bible that, by scientific proven facts, is more than the electrons in the universe blows evolution right out of those things before it ever gets started, and every one of those things came to pass. Now. One of those 48 prophecies as I say, is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it says there that therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And I told you that means God with us. Now, let me show you how the devil worked this out. Around 1880, <coughs> they came out with a new translation. Up to that point, for 400 and some years, the only protestant bible you could buy was a king james bible and the king james bible says in isaiah chapter 14 that behold <coughs> a virgin shall conceive now what the devil wanted to do is he wanted to get rid of the virgin birth because we'll see why here in a little bit so they changed that verse in isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and your new rsv that came out in 1880s and it said behold <coughs> a young woman shall conceive and bear a child well what's the big deal about that that happens in this church about six times a week <laughs> there was nothing supernatural about a, any, a woman conceiving what was supernatural and what was the sign to Israel that a virgin conceived now that's something now, when the new NIV came out, of course you know that the new NIV is based on the Roman Catholic Sinaiticus and, Man- and Manicanus manuscripts out of the Vatican. When it came out, they obviously believe in the virgin birth. They were against what the RSV said in 1881 and uh, about a young woman. They wanted it. They wanted it because they believed that Mary uh, was a virgin. But oh yes. The Roman Catholic text in Isaiah out of the New NIV, which is a Protestant Bible based on Roman Catholic text, it says, The virgin shall conceive. Not a virgin. No, 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 no. They made it the fact that there's only one virgin because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin and she is the virgin. So they want to protect their little doctrine there. No, the key was that, that, first of all, Mary was not a perpetual virgin, but that means that the Roman Catholic Church says she has no more kids, that she was only used of God one time, supernaturally, and therefore she was a perpetual virgin after that, even though that you can go on the New Testament and find out all the other kids by their name and their birthdays and their, and their uh, you know, where they want you to buy their gift is found in the Bible, but that seemed to be irrelevant to it. So let's lay all this out. Why did, why did a virgin... Why did Christ, why did he have to be virgin born? We all believe that he was, but we got to go sub-level now. And here's where this is going to help you And come next Saturday night. It's going to help you right now. But here's the bottom line. Why did he have to be virgin born? Why is that? Why is it so important that it says that he was made of the seed of David, but it's very careful not to tell you that he was born of the seed of David because he was not now I don't know what you know about the Bible but let me give you a brief overview of of a large segment of the Bible when God created Adam and Eve he put them down in the garden the Bible tells you in Genesis that, that Adam was made in God's image and God's likeness very quickly the image is the spiritual side of him the likeness was his physical side and so Adam and Eve are down in the garden. They're made spiritually in God's image. They're made physically after the, after the likeness of God, a head, two arms, a body, and a legs. But when the devil shows up, the devil takes from them the salvation that God gave them, and Adam and Eve lose that spiritual image. And I'm not trying to make this complicated. I'm going to walk you through it very, very, uh, very, very slowly here. Once Adam and Eve lost the image of God, they are now in their own trespasses of sin. And from Adam and Eve right up to the New Testament, man is in a fallen state. Man uh, never gets that image restored. God gives him a physical kingdom. We're studying it. He gives them the kingdom of heaven, a physical kingdom, but the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, is nowhere to be found. And man cannot have a spiritual relationship with God like you and I have. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice there's only certain men in the Old Testament that God comes down to and He talks to them and tells them to tell everybody else? I guarantee you that everybody in the nation of Israel did not have a relationship with God like Moses did. I guarantee you that everybody in the nation of Israel did not have a relationship with God like David did. I guarantee you that not everybody in the nation of Israel had a relationship with God like Joshua did. God in the Old Testament picked certain men and it was those men that God chose to tell everybody else what God had told them. Why? Because man has lost his fallen, he has that fallen image and man can't fellowship with God. So God cannot have fellowship on the basis that he has now until that image gets restored. Now, the history of the Bible, of the Old Testament, you know what it is? In its easiest way to understand it, you know what it is? It is a test. For 5,000 years before Christ ever showed up, for 5,000 years from Adam up to the birth of Christ, God gave man a 5,000-year track record showing man that he could not get to God and solve his sin problems on his own. Every man, from Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Lot, to Moses, to Levi, to to Joshua, every man, from Saul, to Samuel, to David, right up to the kings of Israel, right up to the last one, Zedekiah, every one of them proved one thing, and that was they could not stand up against God's righteousness on their own. In every case, they may have been wisest, holiest men that ever lived. You find nobody wiser than Daniel, and he couldn't do it. You find nobody loves the Word of God more in the Old Testament than David, and he couldn't do it. You find nobody who's a greater type of God the Father than Abraham, and he couldn't do it. What the Old Testament shows you, after 5,000 years, you and I got a problem with our blood. We have a sin issue and we can't get God's righteousness to have fellowship with Him where this old bloodline is running through our veins. You know what the Bible says the biggest problem you and I have is? It's our flesh. Our flesh is what makes us, wants us to go out and do all the things that we know that are wrong. It's your flesh that when you know it's wrong and you know what's right, it almost like it burns inside you to go do what's wrong when you know what's right to do. That's the flesh. You know what the Bible says in the book of Leviticus? The life of that flesh is in your blood. You see, you and I got a blood problem. You and I got a blood problem. The life of this flesh is in this blood. And that was the problem in the Old Testament, the bloodline. And God gave man 5,000 years. And they came and they went. They stood up and they fell. At the end of that time, God says, I'm going to get me a man who doesn't have a problem with his blood. But to do that, i got to get somebody that's not born of man's bloodline. So you know what? He had to get a son that was going to be the Savior, that was going to restore the fallen image that Adam lost, that you and I needed to get back. And the only way he could do that was through a son that was virgin-born who did not come through the bloodline that was tainted down through the history of the nation of Israel. He had to get somebody that was going to be a king. He had to get somebody that was going to reign on the throne of Jerusalem. But he couldn't get somebody that was born of the seed of David because of the bloodline. He had to get somebody who was made of the seed of David supernaturally. See how that works? Now turn over in your Bible to Jeremiah. Let me show you this a little bit closer. We talked about this in the institute class and and everybody will, will help figure this out. 5,000 years. Finally, God, in the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles, finally God gives them a monarchy, a kingship. We find the first king that God gives them is David. And we find the last king that, God, or that they get, and God really didn't give it to them, was a man by the name of Zedekiah. But right before Zedekiah, you got the last official king. Now, let me just say this, that, that during this time the nation of Israel really goes into a mess. We've already talked about it last week, how that they missed the first coming of Christ because they rejected, they rejected God, His Word, and the Holy Spirit. Well, this put them into a mess. But the time you get into the book of Second Chronicles, they are almost at a point where God is going to say, you know what, I've had it with you guys. And God temporarily takes everything from them, turns them over to the Gentile world, and that's where they're living now, but He's going to bring them back after the second coming of Christ is what you and I don't want to miss. But we come down through here and we, we come through the kings. The last official king that they have, and I know this is boring, you don't have to worry about this, just kind of listen it through unless you're in the institute. But the last official king they got is a guy by the name of, of, of uh, Jeconiah. Uh, Really, his name is Jehoiakim with an N. His dad's name is Jehoiakim with an M. It's 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 Jehoiakim with an N. He's also called uh, Jeconiah. Two different names for him. Or maybe one name meaning two different things. I don't know. But anyway, and yet, when you find down here, he's a wicked king. And he doesn't do what's right in his life. And he completely leads the nation of Israel. God and his name, Jeconiah, or uh, Jehoiakim, means Jehovah will establish. He was God's hope that he would bring the nation of Israel back to God. But he didn't. And with Jeconiah is where the line ends. Zedekiah is just a figurehead. Where it ends is with Jeconiah. And when you come down to the end of this, and you want to get in Jeremiah chapter 22 now, here's what God says. God changes his name from Jehoiakim to Keniah. Now I told you Jehoiakim meant established by Jehovah. Kaniah means despised, broken, idol. And what God does here, He pronounces a judgment, not only on Kaniah, but on the line of the kings coming from the nation of Israel. Now look what He said. This is very crucial in your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28. We'll pick it up in verse uh, uh, 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah... The son of Jehoiakim, comes. He's got the M on his name, King of Judah. Were the signet upon my right hand, I would pluck it off, uh, uh, pluck the thence. Now what he's saying is this: Let me break a long thing here, break it down. He's saying I've had it with the nation of Israel. I've had king after king after king after king, and all they've done is denied me, turned their back on me, and went after all the other gods. And he says, this this Kiniah, Despite broken idol, God says, if he was on a if he was a ring on my finger. If he was a ring on a finger on God's finger, he said I'd take that ring off and throw it away. God has had it with the nation of Israel. And by this prophecy right here, he absolutely fixed for time and eternity that when Christ showed up, he had to be virgin born. He could not be born of the seed of David. He would have to be made of the seed of David supernaturally. Well, that's what he said. Verse 25, And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of those who face thou fearest, even the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and under the hands of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bare thee, unto another country, Babylon, where ye were not born, and, he sh- and there ye shall die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Here it comes. This man, Kaniah, that is Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, and God changes his name to Kaniah, despised broken idol. A de- oh, yeah, hello. A despised broken idol. He is a vessel wherein he has no pleasure, wherefore they are cast out, he and his seed. Watch the word seed and are cast into a land which they know not. Now, here it comes. Here's the prophecy. This is one of these places where the Bible is speaking to the whole world. He wants everybody to know. He's not talking to the church. He's not talking to the nation of Israel. He's making a proclamation to the people of planet earth. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man, Keniah, childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judea. You know what he did right there? Because the line from Genesis chapter 49 of the kings run through Judah. And what happens here because Caniah was so wicked and because the nation of Israel has rejected God over and over and over again And has shown now that after 5,000 years, man on his own cannot solve the problem of sin in men's lives. God says the next king that's going to sit on that throne won't be out of the line of Judah through the bloodline of the kings. It'll come through a virgin-born child who is not born of the seed of David like Keniah was, but is made of the seed of David supernaturally see how the thing works that is one of the greatest concepts that you're ever going to find in the Bible based on the virgin birth now I don't know if you know this or not but there's two lines of Christ in your Bible and I'm going to keep this real simple in Matthew chapter 1 you have what we know uh, in the Bible circles as the kingly line that line runs him from Abraham up through up through David to Joseph Joseph who was the mother of, of the husband of Mary, Christ's supposed father? He's in the line of Kaniah. In fact, if you want to lay it out, some point you'll go down through there. You'll find uh, coming down in verse twelve of Matthew chapter one, Jechonias. That's him. That's Caniah. He's in Joseph's line. So that's why that Christ had to be made. He's a king of Israel. He had to be made of the seed of David. That's the kingly line. But he could not have been born of it. Now, that's the first line. The first line of Christ is his kingly line that brings him to Israel as a king. That line runs through Joseph, back through Caniah, back to Abraham. And God did not allow him to be born of that line. He allowed him to be made of that line supernaturally because of the prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22. Now, you have a second line in the Bible, and that's found in Luke. Luke chapter 3 will be his paternal bloodline. And here again, I I don't know if you... I don't know this is where you get an eye for detail. Remember last week I gave you one of the prophecies back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it was one of the prophecies that showed you the first coming and the second coming, they were reversed. Who would want to raise your hand and, and let me? who would want to quote that verse to me? Who would want to do that? You got that verse handy? Just a kind of a little participation this morning. Who want, anybody want to do that? Oh, Joe, what do you got? Real loud. Read it for me. Let's see what we got here. Now, this is another one of these things where you got to watch what's being said. You train your eye. Go ahead, Joe. All right, what do you see in that? What, if you're reading that, and I didn't say this last week because I was saving it for this week, but you talk about an eye of detail, read it again, Joe, real loud. You got it still there? Stand up and read it. I want everybody to hear it real loud, real loud. All right, he's going to put anything enemy between he and a woman, between, uh, uh, go ahead and wait, the rest of it. Between thy seed and her seed. Thy seed, and her seed. Alright, what do you see in there that doesn't add up? Raise your hand. John? Can't hear you. Woman doesn't have a seed. Isn't that a strange thing to put in there? Your little baby's not going to get your bloodline from you, it's going to get it from him. And we thank God for that every day. Woman doesn't have her own seed. A baby gets his blood from his father. When well, you go get a paternal test to find out who the father is. We don't give them here. We give eternal tests here. But you go get that test done. It's done through the blood. <clears throat> because the baby is the seed from the father. Genesis 3.15 says "The seed of the woman. She doesn't have a seed. Oh, boy, the great things of that book. So what you got in John, Matthew chapter 1 now is you got the line of David. From which Christ has to come to be king because he is called the son of David. But he's not a son of David because he comes through the bloodline of the son of David. He's the son of David because he's made of that line supernaturally through a virgin birth that no man had anything to do with. Now, that's why he had to be virgin born. We all believe that he was virgin born. I just gave you one of the greatest concepts you're ever going to find in the Bible, why he had to be. Now, in Luke chapter 3... You have the line. Now here's something you probably did not know. And this will help end the confusion. Mary and Joseph are cousins. They're far removed cousins. But here's how it works. Joseph's kingly line comes from Bathsheba uh, through Solomon, through David. And Solomon uh, is the son after the first baby dies they have another child and that child's name is Solomon. And the line of David runs through that line. Now, Mary's line runs back, but it comes through Bathsheba and David's second son whose name is Nathan. It doesn't come through the king's line, but it comes through the line that goes back to David, but through his second son. Now, Somebody want to tell me why that, 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 that works that way? That the human line had to come through the second one instead of the first one? What is that reason? it always, comes It'll always come through the second one. You know why? Because you must be born again. See how that thing works? So you got two lines in your Bible that I'm not making this as everybody should. Even if you have no knowledge about the Bible, you got to follow a lot of this along. The proof of this. He had to be virgin born because of the blood problem and because of the sin. And no man on that throne is ever going to sit and prosper as long as it comes from that line that had bad blood and had fallen into sin. So when God gives Israel their next king, which by the way is their last king, which will be the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming of Christ, whom they rejected and crucified at the first coming of Christ, that's why he came as a virgin. (coughs) that's why Paul here when he's laying this out eye for detail says he was not (coughs) born of the seed of David but he was made of the seed of David through a virgin birth (coughs) alright now when you understand that when Christ shows up to restore the lost spiritual image that Adam lost he could not be born of a human father he had to be born supernaturally and which is why the Bible says the birth of Christ to a virgin was a sign. It was a sign. It was a neon sign. It was a sign so big that nobody could miss it. The devil tried to counterfeit the sign through many, many other phony virgin births. But as I said before, name me one light that was changed by all those other ones. Show me their book that the chances against their birth was more than the electrons in the universe, and yet they fulfilled. Do you know how big that number is? Let me tell you something. You know what a molecule of water is? A molecule of water is very, very small. You know how many atoms are in a, Now, electrons are smaller than atoms. You know how many atoms are in one molecule of water? You want an idea how big And You start talking, it kind of goes in, but you've got to have a point of reference. One molecule of water. One molecule of water. You know how many atoms is in one molecule of water? Well, let me tell you. If you could get a dollar for every atom, there was in one molecule of water you would have enough money to give everybody on planet Earth six million people one trillion dollars. In one molecule of water that's how many atoms you got and an electron is smaller than an atom. Incredible. That was the chances against that. And yet you got people out there lost today think that (coughs) they're going to win place or show with odds like that against them. You know how I know some of you are crooked? Not all of you, just some of you. You know how I know that people you deal with in life are crooked? Because if you took those odds out to the boats, and you took those odds out to Las Vegas, and you talk about a long shot, and you showed somebody that the odds against were more than electrons in the universe, and yet that thing came through, (coughs) you got to be an absolute fool to see those kind of odds and see that long shot come in and then to stand there and say, well, I don't think the Bible's relevant to me. You're a fool. That book has got you down more than the electrons in the universe and it shows you that it's, it's not an issue of your intellect. It's an issue of your bad heart through your bad blood. You don't want to give up the lifestyle you've got. You actually think you're going to whip this thing. When the chances against it were more than electrons in the universe, you think you're going to win Place or show? That's where we're at with people, see? It was a sign based on the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 22, based on the bloodline of the kings that had gotten tainted when Adam lost that spiritual image. When Christ shows up, born of a virgin... (coughs) He dies on the cross. We're going to get into the next one here. What he does is he restores that fallen image. That's why you and I can have the relationship with Christ that they couldn't have in the Old Testament. You know why? Because he was sinless birth, because he was made of the king seed of David, but not born of the seed of David, because he fulfilled Jeremiah chapter twenty two, because he was a sign, it was virgin, it was born, and the bloodline was pure. The Bible says in Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty, that he had God's blood in his veins. Didn't you read that thing over there in 1 John when they're over there around 1 John uh, 5 or wherever it is in there and it says when he's hanging on a cross and that, that guy sticks that, that, that sword side or that spear in his side and the Bible says what comes out? Water and blood. Water and blood. You think that was just a, you think that was just a, uh, you know, just a kind of like a, a medical report? Don't you know that water and that blood mean something? Don't you know in that same passage John who wrote that says that he, when he saw it back in the, in the Gospel of John it testified of something. You'd ask the next five Christians you, you meet what it testified of. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. There's something wrong with your blood and my blood. And Christ's blood was sinless. <coughs> it had no tainting to it. That's why God would accept it for your sin and for my sin. And when he did that, well, let's, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at the next one. Now, the next thing, and this is another great fundamental doctrine found in verse 4. It says, "...and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead." Now, here's the thing. Once you see the virgin birth, and we know now why, then we get into the next sub-level thing, and this is another great concept. Well, the next thing it shows you is that the proof and the power that Christ was the Son of God was in the fact that He rose <coughs> from the dead. Now, I don't know, like I said earlier, I am not know what you all know about the Bible, but if you want to, some of you might have this already, marked. but <coughs> if you want a definitive passage in the Bible on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, it'd be uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, uh, 15. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, basically through verses 1 through 4, that is the definitive passage in the Bible on the gospel of in fact, the whole chapter is a definitive chapter on not just the gospel, but the resurrection. Here's what he says. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye have also have received, and wherein ye stand, by which, the gospel, also are ye saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first all of all that which I also received, how that, here it comes, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, when you go on in this great chapter, you'll find by the time you get down in 15, 11 through 20, He says this. He says that the resurrection wasn't true and Christ didn't rise from the dead. He says, then everything we're doing is in vain. We are wasting our time. He says, our faith is in vain. He's saying your salvation is in vain. If Christ didn't come out of that tomb and didn't rise from the dead, then everything that we're doing today is absolutely worthless. You wasted your time to come here this morning. You should have stayed home, watched Joe Osteen on television, got lifted up, and then went back to bed for a nap. You wasted your time, risked your life to get here, and if the resurrection isn't true, it's all a sham, and there ain't nothing that's going to work in the thing. That's what he's saying. Because the backbone of your salvation and my salvation and everything that goes on in Christ is the resurrection. And now here it comes. The key to that resurrection is the virgin birth. See how it ties together? And again, most people don't have a clue of what the absolute truth was of how the virgin birth and a resurrection declared Christ to be the Son of God with power. And we all believe that He rose from the dead. We all believe that. But uh, we don't know why it was important to, just like we don't understand the virgin birth. And uh, when Christ, uh, uh, when you, when you, when you understand how it all works, then you, it, it all begins to make sense to you. All right. Now I want to show you how this thing declared Christ to be the Son of God. What was the importance beside the fact that if it isn't, we're in trouble? B- put that aside. What was the absolute reason for? Him to rise from the dead on that third day. What was the point? Putting aside what I've already said about you and me and our salvation, what was the fundamental doctrine that He accomplished when He came out of that tomb? All right, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll show you what the issue is. Now, we've already seen and understood that when Paul opens up in his greeting, some greeting. He's talking about the fact that he was, he was made of the seed of David, but he wasn't born of the seed of David. We've already went back and we've looked at the in absolute necessity for a virgin-born Savior. How that the kings, all the way back to Adam, had problems with their blood. And the prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22 on Je- uh, Jeconias. Je- uh, uh, all three are the same. When the prophecy comes to home on that thing, we find that, uh, that uh, he had to get a sinless king on that throne. But there's a problem here we've got to look at that's the next step. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Now, here's the real issue. Here's why the resurrection hinges on everything. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same that through his death, here it comes, through his death he might destroy him, here it comes, that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's everybody in the Old Testament and that's also me and you. For verily who took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him, here it comes again, see that thing? The seed of Abraham. Notice it didn't say he became it, it says he took on him Now, here's what you got. In the Old Testament, the devil had the power over death and hell. God gave that power to him. When Adam sinned back there and lost the spiritual image of God, the spiritual kingdom passed into the devil's hands. And he now, in the Old Testament, has the keys and the power over death. That's what it says there in verse, uh, in verse 14. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, comma, the devil. Now that's why nobody in the Old Testament could go to heaven when they died. They had to go to Abraham's bosom. That's why in the Old Testament when they died, uh, uh, their death is uh, completely different than when you and I die. The Bible says when you and I die, I have in the body to be present with the Lord. When they died in the Old Testament, they couldn't go to heaven. They went to a place called Abraham's bosom. We've talked about that many times on Thursday night. But in the Old Testament, the devil had the power of death and he had the key. Now, remember over there in in Matthew chapter, I think it's Matthew chapter 16, uh, down around verse 18, I think it is. The Lord's talking to Peter and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, he says, he says, uh, I'm going to give you, you're the rock, and upon this, or I'm the rock, upon this, that you confessed, I'm going to do this and this. And he says, the gates of hell. Now, we talked about a couple of Thursday nights ago, a lady asked a question, is hell real? Is hell literal? And we came back with the assumption that, yes, it is. We know it is. And here's another piece of the puzzle for you. Not only is it real, in a real place, it's got gates on it. And that gate's got a lock on it. And in the Old Testament, the devil had the key to that gate, and that's why when you died, you couldn't get out. You were either in one side or the other. But the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when Christ came down, and again, most people don't have a clue of what was really taking place. When Christ came down of the seed of Abraham, verse 16, virgin born, made of the seed of David, when he died on that cross, when he died on that cross and was buried those 3 days like the Bible says in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 and he rose again the 3rd day, he defeated death. And when he defeated death, the devil was defeated. And at that point, the devil no longer had the keys of death and hell. Now Christ has got them. So what he did at the resurrection, or there about that time, the Bible says that he goes down into Abraham's bosom. That's where the Old Testament saints. You know what they're called in the Old Testament? They're called captives. Some of those Old Testament passages, they're called prisoners. You know why? Because they're prisoners of death. They're captives of death. But when Christ rose from the dead and as the Bible says in Hebrews 2, He defeated the devil. He's got the keys of death and hell. He walks down there and He puts the key to that gate and He opens that gate and He throws the gate back and He walks in and says, Hey guys, you ought to go up with me? I'm going up. I've got the keys of death and hell. I bet that was a hallelujah shouting time, man. The Bible says that He lives captivity captive and He, he ascends up on high. Why? because he had the keys of death and hell. Why is that so important? Because the devil had it, and that's why the devil wanted to keep him in that tomb. That's why the devil, when he died, the devil thought for sure. We were talking about some things that that the devil doesn't know in the Bible with somebody this week, and I'm sure there's some things that the devil didn't know. I'll tell you one of the things he never figured out. He really thought he could keep him in that grave. Now, you know why he did without that? Because he kept everybody else in that grave. The devil made one mistake. He didn't have an eye for detail either. He missed the point where it said, this guy wasn't born of the seed of David. He was made of the seed of David. And I'm sure that when Christ gave up the ghost on the cross and they wrapped him in that linen and they put him down there in that tomb down in the nether parts where Abraham's bosom and hell's at, I'm sure that I'm the, all the devil's horde just broke into a, a, a six-pack party. I bet you they're screaming and yelling the devil's being boasted around that he's, he's won, Christ is dead, everybody's died, nobody could stand before you, and now the one that God sent, we killed him. He's dead. He's in the tomb. And he's sold down here in Abraham's bosom. He ain't got no key. We searched him when he came in. And boy, the first day, man, they're down there, and the party's going strong. First day, man, I mean, there's a lot of beer drinking going on, there's a lot of partying going on, and I mean, they're just having a great time. They're celebrating. The devil's won. This one that was supposed to be the chosen one, he died like everybody else. Second day, well, boy, we're having a great time. Man, the party's continuing. I mean, they are listen to some of your great music and they listen to all that stuff and they're just having a great time. And the devil's sitting up there drunk as a skunk with a crown on his head and he's laughing and he's going to be the king and as soon as this party's over, he's going to go back up, he's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to claim his crown. Third day, what happened to the party? Well, I hear it. I hear a lot of shouting, but I don't hear any music. I hear a lot of of amen, glory to God, but I don't hear any of the other crowd stuff. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Up from the graves he arose with a power over his foes and the keys of death and hell. And at that point, at that point in time, the devil was defeated. You say, he doesn't act like he's defeated. That's beside the point. I read the last chapter of the book. We win, he loses. Years ago, I we did a preaching thing, and a guy was up there, and he was he didn't he didn't breathe he didn't he believed that we were in the millennium right now. And he's preaching up there just as this as heretical as you ever heard in your life. And there's a, a a lady sitting down in the front row. was just taking all kinds of notes. And at the same time, <clears throat> at the end of the thing, she she raised her hand, She says, "You know what?" She says. <clears throat> She said, I don't understand. She said, You told me that that we're in the millennium right now, and and but my Bible says, my Bible says that in the millennium the Satan bound. How do you explain all of this? He said, Well, ma'am, he, nobody ever asked him that before. And he said, Well, ma'am, I, I give her and she said, Oh, I just guess he's got a long chain. Yeah, I guess he does. And I'm telling you, when Christ come out of that tomb. The victory been won. It's over with. And that's why you'll find in your Bible, in the narrative of your Bible, why you'll find in your Bible as the narrative that the Holy Spirit has something else you've got to look at in your Bible. There's times when, when, when Peter is saying something because he was there. And I know he's saying it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I know that. There's times that Peter says something or John says something or Matthew says something. Or one of the Paul says something and he's saying it on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and he's relating the experience that he was there. And then there's time that he's saying something and he wasn't there. And it's, you've got to be able to kind of step out of that one mode and realize that in this passage, Peter wasn't there, Paul wasn't there, nobody was there and the Holy Spirit of God has picked up the narrative and is telling you the story now. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, the narrative of your Bible Never called Jesus Christ Lord till after the resurrection. You know why? Because he hadn't defeated the devil. Oh, I know you find people come up and say, Lord, Lord, sure. And I know the Bible talks the the narrative of the Holy Spirit of God, the narrative of the Word of God. It is in Matthew chapter 28, down there around verse 6, that after the resurrection, he's first called Lord by the Holy Spirit of God. The narrative of your Bible. Why? Because at that point he had defeated death and he had defeated the devil. Two great concepts. And you begin to understand now that not only why he had to be virgin born, because of the bloodline coming through, you understand how Paul has this in his mind. And this is why when you get into Romans and really just about any of the book of the Bible, you've got to watch everything you read. You've got to have an eye. And as and, and sure as I say that, I guarantee you. That means some people go out there trying to find something for everything and that's not it either. You never take it where it doesn't go. You can't just make this up because I think this is something. You got to be it's got to be founded on a doctrine. When he says made of the seed of David, that is on a doctrine of Jeremiah chapter 22. That is on a doctrine of 5,000-year track record of men in a human sense. And really, that's what the book of Romans is all about. After we get into the introduction, we get in here in Romans chapter 1, you know what we find out? We find out exactly what Paul is saying. It is, it is opening. He's saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in chapter 1, the Gentiles who had a relationship with God through their conscience can't solve the problem with their sinful blood. He says in chapter 2, He says the nation of Israel who have the oracles of God, the nation of Israel who were God's chosen people, they can't solve the mess they're in. You know what he does in 4 and 5? He said there's only one way for the Gentiles and the Jews to solve the mess that they're in and that is getting God's righteousness. You know what he does in 4 and 5 and 6? He shows you how to get that righteousness. You know where it goes back to? It goes back to the cross. It goes back to the bloodline. It goes back to the virgin birth and it goes all through the resurrection. So now, as Paul ends his greeting in the book of Romans chapter 1, now he's laid out for us some great sub-level things. And I told you, we're going to take our time with this, so let's go over what we've learned now and get these down. Let's go over what we've learned from the greeting. And next time, next week, we're going to, start the, they're going to start the meat of the book, if this wasn't already meat. But here's what we've looked at. We saw in verse 1 that he began to lay out for you and for me the basic concept of what we're to be as a minister. He, In his own verse 1, as he talked about himself, he said, Paul, a servant. We talked about your attitude. Called to be an apostle, your calling. Separated unto the gospel of God. Then he shows us the reason Israel could not separate <coughs> the sufferings of Christ from the, from, from the glory of Christ. And we saw from that that he, they rejected the Holy Scriptures. And they rejected the spirit of holiness. And they missed the first coming of Christ just like many of God's people will miss the second coming of Christ for the same reason. Now today we've seen the issue behind Christ's birth. There's the fact that He was not born of the seed of David but rather made of the seed of David through a virgin birth. And we now understand not only we already knew that He was but now we understand why He had to be. We have the details now. This will help you when you come up to trying to lay out for me about Jeconiah and Kaniah. This will help you put it all together in a way that you can explain it, make it better, understand it for yourself. And then he shows us the issue of the resurrection, how that the resurrection declared him to be the Son of God with, here it is, Son of God with power. Now, I want to give you something here uh, before we close that shows you how this thing all does. Let me ask you a question. And raise your hand when you answer this. Who 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 raised Christ from the dead? Yes, ma'am? She says himself, yes? He says the Holy Spirit. Anybody else want to chime in there? Who raised Christ from the dead? I mean you would you would you would you would think but this shows you how how this shows you how this another great concept here of, of the Trinity. Who raised Christ from the dead? One of them said the Holy Spirit and the other one said Jesus. They're both right. Oh, right, let me show you this thing. Let me show you how even in, even in the resurrection, the Bible protects the, the image of the concept of the Trinity. Now, Mikey said it was the Holy Spirit and Mikey would be right because over there in, uh, over there in uh, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says that the Holy Spirit of God raised him up. Rebecca said it was Jesus. Rebecca's also right. Because in John chapter uh, uh, 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus made the claim that He would raise Him up. Truth of the matter is, all three persons of Godhead raised Him up. Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and Acts chapter 3, verse 26, God, it says that God raised Him up. You see, by the resurrection of Christ, we have all three, Jesus. So we see now that the resurrection was the fact that what declared Him to be the Son of God. And then I want to leave you with this. Three things you've got to work on in your life. Now, I'll help you, but there are three things you've got to work on. I told you that the three things you've got to do, the first thing you got to do is you've got to train your heart. Now, what does that mean? Let's talk about that for a minute. When it talks about train your heart, what does that talk about? I'll tell you what it means. It means you prepare your heart. Remember in our study of in Institute, we come down through the splitting of the kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam and how that all laid out? You ever take, go through and study Rehoboam over there in 2 Chronicles? You know what it says about Rehoboam? The Bible says that he strengthened himself. But you know where his failure was? He strengthened himself. But the Bible says he did not prepare his heart to seek God. You've got to prepare your heart to seek God. Don't, you don't, don't do it because you get up. We get so used to ordering everything around and everybody around. We think we can order God around. Order God around. You got to prepare your heart to seek God. Jeroboam didn't do it. He was a mighty man, he was a strong man. He took over the part of the kingdom of Israel. He did wicked with it, but he was the ironclad rule. He run it. From the world standard, he was a great politician, he was a great military man, he was a great person. But he, from God's standpoint, he was a failure. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know why? Because with all of his good qualities, he neglected to prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Then you've got to train your mind. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us about that in Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. Where we come down through there and he talks about that you and I to be a, a living sacrifice. And it says, that, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Then you prepare your heart and you transform your mind. You cast down every imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And in time, you transform your mind to think like God. And the third thing that happens, and this one happens automatically, you do the first two, the third one will take care of itself. You know what it'll be? God will train your eye. You can't start... You can't, you see, you can't prepare your heart without God transforming your mind. And God can't get your heart and transform your mind without training your eye. Because the more you think like God, the more you're going to look at things like God and you're going to lift those little things up. It's going to be like reading your... When I read that thing in there a number of years ago about May of the Son, I read that thing, it was almost like that thing just lifted itself out and said, hey, look at me that 's what you want in the Bible, training your eye is based on is based on transforming your mind transforming your mind is all starts with preparing your heart that 's what it takes when you get into the bible that 's where you 're at with it so next week now we 've learned these things you need to I would just say if you 're taking notes on this, just get the main points that we got out of these things over the last couple of weeks, and next week we 'll open up and we 'll start the uh, the, uh, the book itself, we're past the greeting now, and we'll get into the, uh, the things that Paul's talking about, about the Gentile mindset. We'll come at it from a totally different angle, but we learn a lot of good things today, and I hope it helps you. And, and as always, you know what, if you're here and you want to learn the Bible, if you're here and you want to be discipled, if you're here and you want somebody to help you put the Bible together, no matter how old you are, well, you come and see me afterwards, and I will get you with somebody that will help you get the basics done. If you've got questions about the Bible and you want to come over and sit down with me and let me help you, I'd be glad to do that. I'll do whatever I can do to help you. We're here to help you learn your Bible and how important it is to get it all together. Let's pray.